This is Choni's Circle. I'm Tamara Lubicki. I'm Rabbi Paula Rose. And on Choni's Circle, we are going to explore Jewish texts from the Torah through the Talmud and lots of traditional commentaries to grapple with climate change, to help us process our emotions about climate change and about this particular moment, um, and to help us try to make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. We are going to learn today a text from Devarim, a text from Deuteronomy, about the ways that our behavior can affect our harvests, can affect the weather, can can affect the environment around us. Um, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 11. Keep, therefore, all the instruction that I enjoin upon you today, so that you may have the strength to enter and take possession of the land that you are about to cross into and possess, and that you may long endure upon the soil that the Lord swore to your fathers to assign to them and to their heirs, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are about to enter and possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. There, the grain you sowed had to be watered by your own labors, like a vegetable garden. But the land you are about to cross into and possess, a land of hills and valleys, soaks up its water from the rains of heaven. It is a land which the Lord your God looks after, on which the Lord your God always keeps his eye from the year's beginning to year's end. If then you obey the commandments that I enjoin upon you this day, loving the Lord your God and serving him with all your heart and soul, I will grant the rain for your land in season, the early rain and the late. You shall gather in your new grain and wine and oil. I will also provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and thus you shall eat your fill. Take care not to be lured away to serve other gods and bow to them. For the Lord's anger will flare up against you, and he will shut up the skies so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its produce, and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is assigning to you. Therefore, impress these my words upon your very heart. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. And teach them to your children, reciting them when you stay at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. And inscribe them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To the end that you and your children may endure in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to assign to them, as long as there is a heaven over the earth. So the Rashbam, medieval commentator, imagines that actually the function of these verses is to help teach that for those who observe God's commandments, the promised land is actually better than the land of Egypt, and it's worse for those who don't observe God's commandments. And all of this seems to be something of an attempt to encourage observance of the commandments, because Rashbam points out, the land that you're approaching is not like the land of Egypt, which does not need rain, right? The Nile overflows and provides water for irrigation, whether there's rain or not. 
and where, therefore, both good people and sinners have bread because they work to irrigate their fields. <laughs> so there's no moral judgment about whether or not people have food because all people need to do is, you know, work the land and build their irrigation canals and then everyone can sort of bring their own water and therefore yield their own food. But in the land of Israel, if you observe the meat's vote, rainfall is provided by God when it is needed. But the land of Israel, because it's dependent on rain, which is seen as being from God in a way that the waters of the Nile, which are just always there, are seen, I guess, more as part of the natural world. Actually, it's only our own behavior that brings enough water and therefore enough food, and not our own behavior in the sense of working the land. Right. Right. In Egypt, there's also human behavior that that's required, but it's not about following God. It's not about making the right choices. It's not about moral behavior or about holy behavior. It's just like a simple cause and effect. Whereas Rashbam, I think correctly based on, on these verses that we looked at from Dvarim, imagines that the land of Israel, the work, as it were, that's required, the human action that's required, is not about the literal things that we do to cultivate the land, but is actually about observing meat's vote and following God and moral behavior and making the right choices, that that's actually what gives rainfall and therefore sustenance. Right. And this idea, he says, like, for the land of Israel, if you're a worse person, you're going to experience a worse land. If you're a better person, you'll experience a better land. So that the land of Israel could actually be an even better land experience than the land experience in Egypt. You know, it's very much, as you were saying, it's about like prayer and good deeds on the level that it was originally written, probably. But I feel like it's actually very pertinent to today because... There's this idea like we can just use technology to fix all our problems, right? <laughs> That's kind of the more Egyptian experience at that time. Like they figured out this awesome irrigation technology where they irrigated their fields. And if it didn't rain for a long time, it didn't matter because they had the irrigation in place. While in the land of Israel, they were very much dependent on the natural rhythm and the natural cycle. And like, it's similar today, right? Like there's some people, this isn't fully true, but it's like a lot, a thread of thought that like our world can change in extreme ways and we'll be okay because we'll just get the technology to like deal with it. And there's this other thread of thought, which is you can't build a technology big enough to mm -hmm. deal with global scale things like horrific floods or like years long drought. Whatever we build can't be big enough. I personally think we need to like take both mindsets. <laughs> Again, there's that like dynamic thinking, right? Like we do need those technologies. And yet it's probably true that things can get so bad that we can't actually respond to such huge fluctuations, right? So that's kind of like what came to me 
what did you think when bringing this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something really interesting here, sort of historically. So, so part of that long text from Dvarim is the second paragraph of the Shema, which in most communities, or at least most Ashkenazi communities, is read silently because of the way that it's that it's kind of threatening, a reminder of, of the negative consequences that could happen for not worshiping God and not following God's mitzvot. Um, so there's always, I think, been some discomfort in Jewish tradition with those verses, even as they're traditionally recited multiple times a day. But actually, it had been that a lot of reform movement Sidurim, a lot of prayer books coming out of the reform movement, removed most or all of that paragraph because of a sense of like, that's not how the world works, right? Like, it's like this really punishing God that's like, if you do the right thing, then there will be rain and everything will be great. And if you do the wrong thing, then there won't be rain. And like, that doesn't always feel right in the world that we live in, right? Like the world doesn't work quite that simplistically. And now actually there's been, I think, a real return to these verses as we've come to appreciate actually the way that our behavior does affect whether or not we have rain and does affect whether or not we can endure on the land that God has given us. And it's obviously not in sort of like the literal simplistic way that we might have once read this text. It's not an easy sort of one-to-one <laughs> one-to-one equation. But I do think it's really interesting the way that, like, you know, for somewhat unfortunate reasons, this text, I think, has become really resonant for a lot of people in a totally different way, where it once might have been a little bit overlooked. It now feels like it holds a lot of truth. Right. I wonder if it's come back also, because even though we feel like we have a scientific understanding and grip, of climate change and we can actually predict a lot of these extreme weather events and we know what's or at least some of us as you said like understand how the greenhouse gases trap the heat and affect the moisture level you know etc etc like in a way the devastation and the change of what can we expect is so huge to us that there is something about bringing God back into it that is meaningful. I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, right, I think that can be like a helpful sort of coping mechanism. And I don't say that dismissively, but that the reality of what we're facing feels really overwhelming. And so to be able to contextualize it in the context of something larger where we're not, you know, the top of the food chain and are not the ones with all of the power and all of the authority, right? Even as our behavior affects our reality, to be able to relinquish some of that responsibility, I think, can be really comforting. Otherwise, this is even more scary than it might than it might otherwise be. Right. And it is scary, but I think... We can't live with that fear most of the time. And we can't live with the fear and take the actions we need to, like be active at the same time. Looking back at Jewish history and all the suffering and fear and uncertainty we've had to endure, to me there's 
a similarity, right? The Jewish people had to continue on and keep living despite crisis levels, like continuous crises. So I think it's interesting that this is something we say two times a day. <laughs> yeah, it's just we have to let go sometimes in order to carry on. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe adding one more dimension of kinds of responsibility that we have and don't have. I think it's really interesting that Rashbaum kind of reads this as like an individual responsibility, right? So if you're a good person, the land of Israel is really good because you have, you know, the rain and the sustenance that you need. And if you're a bad person, then the land of Israel is not good because you're not going to have the things that you need. And regardless of what kind of person you are, Egypt will be fine because you'll have what you need in Egypt. And I think one of the things that's really challenging, but maybe also inspiring about our reality is that we know it's not really about individual decisions, right? Our individual decisions matter and they add up. But it's not like if I make all of the right sustainable choices, climate change won't happen to me. Right. Um, and if somebody else makes all of the wrong choices, climate change will happen to them, right? In fact, we're actually seeing in some ways the opposite, right? That some of the places that are least responsible for creating the climate crisis are suffering the most right. because of it. And so in that way, I think our reality is different, at least from how Rashbaum interprets this text, in that it's not really an individual reality. It's really a communal reality. And so on the one hand, that's really hard, right? Because it means that no matter how many sustainable choices I make, I'm not really in control of whether we'll have the rain or sustenance that we need. <laughs> right. On the other hand, again, sort of like bringing God into the picture, it's also a reminder that I don't have to solve this problem by myself. Right. It's a reminder that we're all in this together in some ways and that it's our collective actions that are going to dictate what kind of climate reality we live in, not any one person's choices. Right, definitely. Yeah, and I guess as a community ritual of like saying a prayer two times a day, like everyone is saying it together. There's the acknowledgement that the individuals make up the community and that all these individuals need to act together as a community to make that change. I'm Rabbi Paula Rose, the Associate Rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom in Seattle. This podcast is a project of Congregation Beth Shalom and Ahavat Ve'avodat Adama, our community's environmental group. Choni's Circle was recorded in Seattle, Washington at Full Track Productions. It was produced by Tamar Labicki and Dave Dintenfass. With original music by Ella Labicki Feldman. Thanks for listening and learning with us.